make sure you're ready for it and be prepared because it's a long, hard, tough road, but be incredibly stubborn, right? Like if there, there were at least, you know, at least half a dozen times at simple where I was just ready to give up and just be like, we can't do this. Like, this is just not doable, right? Like there's so many kind of like, you think you're, everything is fine. You have it all figured out and out of left, uh, left wind or whatever. Like you just get this like massive shock and you're like, everything I've spent the last six months working on, throw it away, start again, right? Um, and, and that is, you know, the, I, the, the only reason we succeeded is because we just kept at it, right? Like we never actually gave up, even though, uh, and this is where having a good co-founder is useful because um, many times I persuaded Josh not to throw in the towel and many times Josh persuaded me not to throw in the towel uh, at Simple, right? Uh, we were never all three co-founders ready to give up at the same time, thankfully. So we never did. Hey everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another app episode of The Inventive Journey, and I'm your host, Devin Miller, the uh, serial entrepreneur that's grown uh, several companies, uh, seven and eight figure businesses, as well as uh, the CEO and founder of Miller IP Law, where he helps startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. And on today's episode, we have another great guest, Shamir and, uh, and uh, Karkal, is that right? Close enough? Close enough, yeah, Karkal. Yeah. All right. I tried my best, and yet I always slaughtered. Yeah, you did very well. <laughs> so um, Shamir is—he uh, has a, a great or an interesting story to tell. So he's uh, been a bit of the banking or financial industry. So he—I uh, think he or founded Simple or Simple dot com back in two thousand nine. Sold that off, and then uh, did another uh, startup um, with uh, I think it's BBVA. Is that right? And uh, did that for a couple of years. And now he's on to his uh, current business or his current startup. So had some success in various industries. And now he's on to building his next successful business and are interested and uh, have another great uh, journey to tell. So welcome on to the podcast. Thank you, Devin. And and I'm excited to be here and uh, tell you guys a little bit about myself and and sort of my uh, entrepreneurship journey um Scylla is my second or third startup depending on how you depending how you count it you always always want to make it sound better than it is so we'll go with third right okay that that works I mean you could argue for fourth as well but whatever um the uh kind of my my entrepreneurship journey started in 2009 Mm -hmm. um and uh I was I was still in my 20s back then uh but uh the sort of the start of it, you know, I used to be a software engineer, uh, came to the US, went to business school and was working as a management consultant in 2009. Uh, and a friend and classmate from business school sent me an email saying, uh, let's start a retail bank. Um, and I've actually posted that uh, email on a blog on Medium since, right? And, and uh, Josh, who was my friend and is my friend, um, he had been an entrepreneur before. He'd sold a business in Australia before he came to business school uh, and then went off to work at startups uh, in New York. And he had gotten very frustrated with his personal banking because he'd gone from being, you know, single uh, engineering uh, CTO of a startup to uh, to um, kind of uh, 
uh, he'd, he'd got, gone from that to getting married, buying a house, and his financial life had gotten a lot more complex, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so in that in that process, he'd gotten very frustrated with his bank. He started asking me all these questions about how banking worked, uh, mainly because I was doing financial institutions consulting and knew a little bit about it, and I would actually answer his questions. And then he came up with this idea of starting a bank. And you'll see how crazy I am that in 2009, in the middle of, either the worst or second worst financial crisis we have seen in our lifetimes, I actually thought it was a good idea to go start a bank. Um, So I got excited about uh, his vision for easy to use, consumer friendly, uh, tech-centric, mobile phone-centric banking. And, uh, and, and jumped on board, right? Like, so he sent me that email, like we started discussing it. Uh, I was based in Brussels, but I flew back to New York. And a few months I, later, you, I, I hold on, I, I will let you get back to your journey. But just as a diving in, so if, if just to set the context, 2009, you got all these banks that are basically and financial institutes in general, that are declaring bankruptcy going bust, they've all made bad investments. And you thought, okay, with all of these banks closing, why don't I open my own bank? Is that about it? I mean, that does sound, it makes it, first of all, open your own bank, period, sounds like a lot of work and effort and to figure out all the regulations and the red tape. But then to do it in the midst of the of a terrible financial crisis makes it sound all the more crazy. So didn't mean to jump or jump in. We just kind of glossed over that. Yeah, it was 2009 and we just started to start, start a bank on one of the worst timing that you could have done or maybe the best timing. Uh, so we thought it was actually good timing, and 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 you you aren't you aren't wrong actually. I mean, my last two projects at McKinsey before uh, Josh emailed me were a country bailout and a bankruptcy of a large European bank, which was which was gigantic, right? So those were all like multi-billion, multi-hundred billion <laughs> projects, where, where the, you know the, the the numbers involved were insane, right? And I was of course a very small player uh, in trying to kind of uh, help clients, but um, but yeah, that was that you know, and and then I left McKinsey and went off to start a bank. Uh, but the kind of our thesis was that that was exactly the best moment because it had become clear to everybody not that banking was broken, right? I mean, especially in the U.S. Um, and say whatever, you know, 80% of people have a bank account. Um, there's an underbanked segment. There's an unbanked population. Uh, those people have historically been underserved. But the vast majority of people before 2008 may have been okay with their banks. Right? Nobody really enjoyed a bank's like mobile apps, but there weren't that many mobile apps anyway. You didn't, you didn't go to a bank for technology. But you trusted the bank for its stability and, and the fact that you know money is so important to you well in 2008 2009 everybody quickly learned that your the security did not come from the bank the biggest banks in the world could go bust the security came from the fdic and government insurance uh which then brings up the question if, if it's really the government that's behind all these banks then why are we putting up with lousy service crazy fees uh, all the things that people hate about banking right and this was the moment when Occupy Wall Street was happening. Um, so our thesis was that this was the best moment to start a bank. Uh, and I think at the end, it, we weren't far wrong on that. Uh, what we didn't fully realize is how hard it actually is to do that. Um, between 2000 and 2008, every year in the US, there were between 100 and 300 banks started. So every year, like there was a, there was a whole cottage industry starting banks, mostly small community banks in kind of 
you know suburban or rural areas right and we were like we can just co-op that start our own bank it takes money and time it's not like an overnight thing uh, but we were determined to go through with it uh, except that between 2008 and today in 2020 i mm. believe there have been less than 10 um, so that whole cottage industry of starting banks kind of just died in 2009 um, and we didn't realize that because I remember I was in Brussels I'd been in Brussels for a year even though I'd been in you know I'd, I'd taken a transfer just before the crisis to Europe came back and was like oh shit everything's changed here the regulate on the regulatory side there are, there are no bank charters being approved anymore and we can't get one so now how do we do this given that we can't get our own bank charter uh, and we figured it out. We found a bank partner. We found a processor, figured out that it wouldn't work. I think everything that we figured out, we did it wrong at least once. Um, and hey, it's all good startups do. You got to do it. You got to do everything wrong once to make sure you do it right the second time. If we did it wrong, if we did it right the second time, that was good for us. I think sometimes it was the third time. But anyway, you know, we found a bank, we found a processor, figured out how to connect them, added like three or four more of them and finally got to the point where we built like an API layer on top of which we could then build our web and mobile apps. Mm -hmm. um, and that was, uh, you know, that, that's when we launched Simple. That journey took three years. So from first email to actually launching Simple was a three-year journey. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and then less than like 22 months later, uh, we sold it to BBVA, uh, which is a big Spanish bank, uh, for 117 million, right? Uh, and we had raised less than 20 million. So it was a good exit. Uh, everybody made money. Some of the early investors made over 6X, which is, you know, it's a decent venture return, right? Um, and hey, we, anywhere I can 6X my money, I'll take it. So it sounds like a good return to me. Yes, and, and, in, and in less than five years, right? So it, yeah. was, it was a good good return. I think nobody complained. Um, and, and, and for us, I mean, obviously we made some money as well as founders and management, but we took, I think we took a little bit over $8 million of that 117 and distributed it to about a hundred employees. Um, so all, every employee made money and, you know, there was, there were customer service people in their early twenties who kind of, you know, a month after the sale went out and bought their first house. Right. Um, which, you know, Portland isn't that expensive, but it's not that cheap either. And uh, and so it, it was it was a life changing event for a lot of people, and I'm I'm pretty proud of that. Um, the, uh, the kind of a few months after the acquisition, uh, I was in the offices of uh, uh, you know the BBVA execs uh, in Madrid. And one of the execs mentioned this idea of building an API platform. Uh, and for those of you who are not familiar, APIs are application programming interfaces. This is how computer systems connect to each other. So, you know, the, like you could think, there's, there's a lot of API companies out there now, everybody from AWS to Stripe, uh, Square, all of these are, you know, uh, they serve businesses online, but they serve them electronically by providing the, ability to do things like operate data centers or process payments, right? Uh, and, and BBVA wanted to build an API platform for uh, financial innovation or FinTech really. Um, mm -hmm. And when I heard that, I was like, yes, please <laughs> do it. The world needs API platforms in banking. If this had existed in 2010, Josh and I wouldn't have spent three years building our own, right? We could have, we could have well, then you would have, such, would have had such a good exit, so it still worked out all right. So well, maybe part, know, if, part, 
if I were to jump in or just for a second and explain APIs, I think you did a good job. But if you were to say, hey, you know, what makes a lot of times, whether it's, you know, Square or it makes, you know, that you can log in or you can interconnect different websites. It can be banking. APIs can also be done, but it's really a way for different systems to talk to each other. And it's a protocol to allow them to talk to each other. So if you wanted to make a, you know, something that, you know, hooks into a, a banking system or you want to have a payment platform like Stripe or Square or other things, if you're a third party, you use their APIs, it basically makes it so that you're using the sending data back and forth in the format that their system wants. Is that a fair, a fair summary? That is a, that is a very fair uh, statement. And what APIs really allow is scale and speed, right? I mean, 50 years ago, you could walk into a bank and, and sign a piece of paper and say, you know, pay X or, or, and, and that's how all money used to move. There weren't that many computers 50 years ago, right? Everybody was still paper-based. Uh, I don't know. There's only there, so there, I guess much. Maybe there, yeah, 70s or maybe a bit a few computers, but certainly not a lot. So 50 years ago. The, the computerization of like U.S. banking really happened in the 70s. It was like, you know, it started in the early 60s. The the first computers, the I, I think the first 10 IBM mainframe sales uh, went to like, the Department of Defense or different areas of like the military and uh, and insurers. And then very soon after that, like banks, right? Um, you you got to remember up until 1960, the word computer was a job description for a person. And what that person did was just add numbers in a ledger. And the place that had the most computers was banks. Like if you were a large bank and you had to produce your end of the quarter report, you know, People would write it into ledgers, then ship the ledgers over at the branch. It would go up to regional headquarters, would then add it up there. Then regional headquarters would send it to like the big city and they would add it up there. It would take like a month to add up all these numbers on paper, right? So as soon as electronic computers became available, banking execs were like, I can take this you know, room full of 100 people writing on paper and replace them with one machine, which is only half the size of the room. Sold, <laughs> right? And so 60s and 70s, that's, you know, pretty much all the large banks in the U.S. got in computers, right? So if we uh, which now, is now, now bringing it back to where we're at today. So we, we could go on nostalgia and computers and baking and all that for a all long, time, deep yeah. rabbit I'm a big history buff. <laughs> oh, and I am too. So I, it, it would be a fun conversation. But if we were to keep, try and keep on topic and not do too many rabbit holes. So you did simple uh, and then it, that got acquired or sold out to BBVA. You did that for, you stayed with them for a period of time working with that. And then you said, okay, APIs came out. I can now, where it took me forever to and learn a lot of mistakes and figure out how to do my own bank. Now I can simply do the APIs and be able to make or make those connections and hook up without having to do all the, that groundwork. So you had the idea. And what made you decide was, uh, you know, because you're working at the time at BB, BBVA, and if I can say it right, and, uh, you know, why not go pitch it to them? Or, you know, what was the decision between oh, you know, no, no, I did. them or I, doing it on your own? Well, I, I kind of, like I said, I tried to do everything wrong once before I do it right. <laughs> uh, so when I heard the idea at BBVA, I was like, Let's, let, you should do it. And they were like, well, we don't know how. I was like, I'll write you a document. I'll tell you how to do it. Uh, and I did. And they spun up an internal ventures team to build this as a kind of an internal venture within BBVA. They asked me to be an advisor. And a year later, I was running that business. So I left Simple and moved to the parent company and built two API platforms, one in Europe and one in the US. And we built it and we launched it. And I spent two years of my life doing that. Uh, and even now, right, like if you go to the industry press, they're, they're, they're touted as big successes. 
But what I quickly realized was I could build the tech, but I couldn't change the bank, right? And I couldn't change the bank's culture and processes and strategy and compliance and risk and legal. And so while, while a customer could spend two weeks integrating into the technology and be like, technical integration is done, we are ready to go live. I'm like, now starts your two year journey with our risk and compliance system at BBVA to get you launched, right? And that doesn't work in today's world. I'm not sure it ever worked, but definitely not in today's world, right? Like everything yeah. about innovation now is hyper competitive and hyper speed. Um, mm. For a bank, launching a new product is a three-year journey. For a startup, launching a new product is like a three-week, maybe three-month for a complex product, right? You can't afford to wait that long. So mm. I kind of had to tell all my potential customers while I was at BBVA to go somewhere else, right? Because mm. it'll just take too long with BBVA. That was frustrating as hell. So I left BBVA, thought about what to do with my life and realized that I still wanted to solve this problem, right? I still wanted to make it easy for anybody who wants to innovate with money, uh, payments, funds, flows, whatever it is. I wanted to build a platform for them to do it quickly and easily. And so I built Scylla. Now, the difference with Scylla is that we are a startup. We're not uh, a giant behemoth. Uh, we still work with banks, but we have one partner bank and uh, we operate as an API, API layer on top of them. Uh, we found a great bank who's able to move much faster. Than, and it's a small bank based in Memphis, Tennessee. So, you know, they just move faster. Um, but, but also we encapsulate a lot of like the compliance and risk and legal and everything else that you need to do we have built API capabilities to do that automatically. And they've also built in-house you know, processes to manage that. Um, so most of our customers never even need to interact with our backend partner bank, right? Uh, we act as the API layer and the technology layer. And I think our record now is we had a customer go from discovering Scylla to being live on the platform in production in 20 days. Mm-hmm. And compare that to what took Josh and me three years uh, mm-hmm. at, in 2000, you know, between 2009 and 2012, right? Uh, so the, the, so what we do, we do very well and we do it very fast and we are very efficient at it uh, at a level that a large bank uh, could never even dream of doing um, or any large institution, I think, but especially not a bank. Uh, and we are very early stage ourselves. We just got launched October last year, but we are growing nicely, uh, launching a whole host of services. Uh, and if you're familiar with it, we do identity verification, linking of bank accounts and payments uh, via ACH right now and soon via cards and you know other payment capabilities. But we encapsulate that all into a very easy platform on, on top of which you can build your products and services. And okay. uh, I mean, I can talk for hours about Scylla or any of this, but I maybe, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I'm sure you have some questions. So no, so you did that. And, and you know, one of the things I think we talked a, bit, uh, a little bit about is, you know, if you were to go, so at, when you did Simple and you built it up and you, then you had, you know, I think that you mentioned um, you had, you know, you had some late stage investor, investors that came along and, uh, you know, that they, without enough cash reserves and there was some, there were motivations for selling the company, you know, selling the company or with Simple.com, you know, what was the kind of the lessons you learned or, you know, as you kind of said, okay, we're going to do another startup, we're going to do this differently, you know, was it, hey, we're not going to take on investor dollars. Was it, we're not, you know, we're going to be careful of who we hire or, you know, who I partner with or all the above, or, you know, kind of what was that, 
hey, if I'm going to go back into kind of doing, not the exact same business, but a similar industry, trying to do something different, what were some of the lessons you learned between, hey, I did this the first time and now I did it the second time? Yeah, so, uh, so many, right? <laughs> um, so I, I, one of the things that I like to kind of think through, like what we did right at Simple, right? Like, you know, the, the, the thing that happens with, there's this joke that, you know, generals are always fighting the last war. Um, and I want to make sure that not only do I not make the mistakes that I made at Simple, but I also do the things right that we managed to do uh, at Simple, right? Um, I think we had an awesome team at Simple. I, there's at least half a dozen, if not a couple of dozen startups started by ex-Simple uh, employees. Um, and and uh, we had an amazing team and I'm super like focus on making sure that we keep building an amazing team because especially, you know, uh, as you get bigger, it's not about you anymore. It's about the team executing. And of course, you want to have processes. Of course, you want to have technology, but ultimately people are super important. So I think that's one thing that we did right before. And I think we are tr doing it right again now. Um, the, uh, the, the thing that ended up happening with, uh, with Simple was that it took us so long to launch. And, and this is where the, remember, it was very early days in FinTech. Nobody anywhere in the US and maybe anywhere in the planet had started a bank before. And it took us so long to launch that a lot of people just wrote us off as vaporware. Um, and not our customers, because our customers actually stuck with us throughout the whole thing, but like uh, not, but especially in the investment community. And the, uh, kind of the, the end result of that was that once we finally launched, we had to climb uh, a, a wall of sort of negative expectations that people were like, what? Those guys are still around? We're like, yeah, we actually launched and we're growing nicely and we have a customer base and an interesting business. People were like, you must be kidding me, right? Like I thought that thing vanished like two years ago. I'm like, no, no. <laughs> so that, so that, that, that was the, you know, the uh, kind of the, uh, the, the, there's the upside of the hype cycle, but there's also the downside of the hype cycle, right? And we managed to get ourselves caught in the downside just as we finally launched. Um, product market fit wasn't that hard. I mean, the in, in industry overall is amazingly uncompetitive in the sense that a lot of banks, large banks are rolling out innovations now which were things that Simple did eight years ago. And I'm like, really? Took you eight years to copy that? Damn, man, what were you doing for the last seven? <laughs> you should have done it like 10 years ago. Um, so the, the, it, it took a little bit of work to get to product market fit, but not that much. Like six months after launch, all the metrics were beginning to look up and to the right. But convincing investors of that was very hard. And so one of the lessons I learned is that once the investment community writes you off, getting them to rethink the kind of the consensus, there's a herd mentality, right? Mm. When you're the golden boy and everybody thinks you, you can almost do nothing wrong. Once you people write you off, it goes the other way just as bad. No, and I think, uh, and that, that's, I think that's across the board, whether it's banking or anything. So I think it's interesting when you talk about herd mentality, because if you're to take it, you know, and, and for people, you know, what you always want when you're trying to do investment rounds is to get a lead investor, right? Because if the lead investor, he does the most due diligence, the most work, and usually it's somebody reputable or a bigger person. And then the people come along and say, okay, well, if he's invested or if, if you got a good lead investor, it makes, opens up all those doors, you know, much more easily. But if you have a difficulty or if those lead investors fall through or otherwise, it can make the job much more difficult because now they're saying, well, why aren't they investing or what's wrong with them? So I completely get that. So 
One question, and you know, not to jump too much topic. So you, you built, the, built the first company, you know, simple.com, ended up selling it off, making a good return. Now you're on to, you know, silly money and doing that. So, you know, would you, is the, based on, you know, doing the first one and building it up and selling it off, is a projection for silly money that, that you want to try and replicate the success and get a good return for investors? Is it, hey, I want to build this, I want to keep this, and it's something I want to build for the long term? Or, you know, kind of where do you see the trajectory of the company going? Well, so I think the opportunity size now is is much, much larger. Mm. Um, if you look at it, uh, the kind of the over global advertising industry, right? Uh, the same, the space that Facebook and Snap and Google, all of them make the revenue from advertising. That's like a 600 billion industry globally. Uh, financial services as an industry is 15 to 20 trillion in annual revenue. It's the, one of the largest industries in the world. And that makes sense when you think about it, right? Like the world isn't built on advertising. It's built on like agriculture and transportation and construction and finance and, and things like that, right? Those are the building blocks of what people do. Advertising is just like a thin layer on top, right? Um, and the world of finance has not changed much in the last 20, 30 years. Everybody from PayPal, uh, which was one of the first fintech startups 20, what, 21, 22 years ago. From PayPal to Stella, everybody combined is not even 1% market share of that, you know, 15, 20 trillion. <laughs> uh, the, the money is all still at the banks and they are old, outdated. They have lousy uh, customer service. I mean, nobody, like, find people who genuinely love their bank. And I'll be surprised at that, right? <laughs> uh, you can find people who love Facebook. You can find people who love Twitter, or ha- love Gmail. Also find people who hate it, right? But find people, most people when it comes to their large bank are like, nah, whatever. They work most of the time. I put up with it, right? And I'm like, that should not be how one of the largest industries in the world works, right? So there's a mm-hmm. massive opportunity for innovation. And I think Scylla could easily be orders of magnitude larger than uh, than simple. And there are, right? Like there are companies like PayPal, Stripe, Square, very large companies which have been started in the last 10 years even and who are still growing rapidly even 10, 20 years after they were founded just because the space is so large. No, I think that I, I'm in agreement with, well, I think there are a lot of industries that there could do. It's a, it's shocking there how bad so many industries are, customer service and doing things well. And I always, you know, and I, I've talked about it on the podcast a couple of times before, but legal industries, which is I'm in, first of all, all lawyers have a horrible reputation and, you know, everybody has a lawyer joke. But even beyond that, you know, you look at it, maybe a, a different industry, but, you know, a lot of people at some point in their life use lawyers or need lawyers or otherwise encounter with them and yet the average on the you know for a lawyer in our industry is you know anytime you make any sort of a correspondence so email or phone call or text or anything it takes a lawyer at least three days to get back and a lot of times up to five to seven days and you're saying these are people that are clients or want to give you money or anything else and they just are horrible so i think that there's a lot of and i think financial industry in a large long a large way is a lot of the same things it's ripe for destruction disruption a lot of things you can do to change it so well we could go on and go down a lot more rabbit holes have a lot more conversations and i'm sure at least the two of us would enjoy it but everybody else would probably start to wade so as we do that as we start to wrap up the podcast um I always ask two questions at the end of the podcast, so I'll kind of jump to those now. Um, but the first question I always ask is, 
and we've kind of hit on it maybe a bit throughout the conversation, but we'll ask it anyway. Um, what was the worst business decision you ever made? Uh, worst business decision I ever made, um, probably to sign a, a term sheet with a private equity firm. Um, mm. That came back and rebounded on us have badly at Simple. And uh, it, it eventually led to kind of like, uh, you know, the, the us selling the company, which was a very successful sale, don't get me wrong, but it wasn't something that we were planning on when the, the, the whole process started. So I think the lesson I've learned is to really understand your investors and how they operate. Uh, and, you know, venture capital versus private equity, it seems it might be a distinction that kind of lost on some people. It was to me nine years ago. Now I understand it very well. Uh, VCs just operate differently from PE shops. Okay. No, I, and I, and I think, you know, it's not quite as bad. Maybe it's more like, I was going to say, you know, kind of an investor, I would say a partner is almost like, you know, finding a partner of a business is like a marriage in the sense that you spend as much time with them. You probably have as many fights with them. You have to deal with them on a day-to-day basis and, you know, and everything else. And, and if you get divorced, it's just like having to separate all the assets of the business, but investor, you know, not quite to that same level, but I still think that, you know, you need to, Sometimes you just, you know, you look at money as green, right? And, you know, money is always a good thing. You know, you always are looking for money to start up and trying to get things going. But I think that, you know, choosing a good investor as opposed to any investor that has the money can make a big difference in the trajectory because as you take, all money has attachments and they can be good attachments and they can be worthwhile or they can push you and your business in a direction that you don't want to go or shouldn't go. So I think it's a good lesson to learn is, you know, sometimes money is not, you shouldn't take the money or you got to make sure the money you take is the good money. So now as we jump to the second question I always ask is, so talking to someone that's just getting into a startup or small business, just wanting to get going, what's the one piece of advice you'd give them? Make sure you're ready for it and be prepared because it's a long, hard, tough road, but be incredibly stubborn, right? Like if there, there were at least, you know, at least half a dozen times at Simple, where I was just ready to give up and just be like, we can't do this. Like, this is just not doable, right? Like, there's so many kind of like, you think you're, everything is fine, you have it all figured out and out of left, uh, left wind or whatever, like you just get this like massive shock and you're like, everything I've spent the last six months working on, throw it away, start again, right? Um, and, and that is, you know, the, the, the only reason we succeeded is because we just kept at it, right? Like we never actually gave up, even though, uh, and this is where having a good fa- co-founder is useful because um, many times I persuaded Josh not to throw in the towel and many times Josh persuaded me not to throw in the towel uh, at Simple, right? Uh, we were never all three co-founders ready to give up at the same time, thankfully. So we never did, right? Uh, and, and that I think is, it's, you know, it's, it's just raw stubbornness at some point is, is what you need sometimes to just overcome, right? No, and I'm in agreement. I think that a lot of different, you know, and, and sometimes you have to gauge your stubbornness of, hey, sometimes we need to pivot or we need to make an adjustment. So I don't think the stubbornness comes at, hey, I'm, I'm going to just bury oh, my yeah, head yeah. in the sand and never make an adjustment. But I think you oh. have to have enough tenacity that to realize everything is not going to go your way. You're going to have to be able to weather the storm and understand it and adjust it and everything else. And if you don't have that tenacity or that ability, then you, it's going to be very difficult if you're ever going to build a business. So I think that's a good piece of advice. So, well, as we wrap up, people want to check out your product. They want to invest in your product. They want to be a customer. They want to find out more information or just want to reach out to you. What's the best way to connect up with you guys? 
the go to the website uh, silamoney.com that is s i l a m o n e y.com uh, we're also on twitter uh, at uh, silamoney and uh, we're also on instagram um, and you know uh, i'm i'm very active on kind of every social media platform except facebook um, and so you can you can look me up as well uh, but of course you know as a as a brand we have you know we have a sign up where you can uh, on the website you can chat apis read the docs you can start developing and you can uh, you know you can just visit silla money and and check out the product all right well i encourage everybody um, to make sure that you uh, check out silla money get connected, use a product, invest in it, make it a success and everything else. So um, thank you again for coming on. It's been a pleasure. It's been fun to talk to you and to hear your journey. Um, for all of, the, all of you that have your own journey to tell and would like to come on the podcast to tell us, um, feel free to go to inventivejourneyguest.com and apply to be a guest. If, uh, and if you're a listener, make sure to uh, click subscribe so you can make sure to hear this episode and all, all the new episodes that come out. And uh, lastly, if uh, you need any help with patents and trademarks, feel free to reach out to us at uh, Miller IP Law, and we're always here to help. Thanks again for coming on. Uh, it's been a pleasure. It's been fun to hear your journey. Wish you the next uh, leg of your journey as good as the last one. And uh, we'll have to see how things continue on for you. So thanks again for coming on. Thank you for having me.